Hello and welcome back to another week in the wonderful world of Sasta with your host Harry Stebbings at hstebbings on Snapchat and brought to you by the main man Jason Lemkin at JasonLK on Twitter. Now do not forget if you'd like to join me and Jason for a mojito or 10 at the world's greatest SAS conference, Sasta Annual, then all you have to do is enter the promo code DRINKSWITHHARRY, those three words, DRINKSWITHHARRY, still can't believe Jason agreed to that promotional code, and not only will you get 20% off the ticket price, but you'll also get a free happy hour of mojitos with me and Jason courtesy of the kind bank of Mr. Lemkin. But to the show today, and I'm so thrilled to welcome Matt Murphy. Now, Matt is a managing director at Menlo Ventures, where he focuses on multi-stage investments across cloud infrastructure and AI-first SaaS applications. Since joining Menlo, Matt has led investments in Heap Analytics, UserMind, and Veriflow. And previously, Matt was a general partner at Kleiner Perkins for over 15 years. In addition to this, Matt was also an observer at Google, from initial investment to IPO. He also launched the iFund in in 2008, which was a collaborative initiative with Apple to build the defining applications on the iOS platform. And he also led Kleiner Perkins investments in AutoNavi and AeroHive networks. Before joining Kleiner, Matt worked at semiconductor startup NetBoost, which was acquired by Intel, where he led product management. And prior to that, he was at Sun Microsystems, where he led business development for the network systems group and was a product line manager for networking platforms. I also have to give a huge hand to Jason Lemkin for making the introduction to Matt today, without which the interview could not have happened. However, enough from me, so without further ado, I'm delighted to welcome Matt Murphy, Managing Director at Menlo Ventures. Good, that's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Matt, so fantastic to have you on the official Sasta podcast today. Firstly, huge thanks to Jason at Sasta for the intro, but Matt, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, thrilled to be here. Jason's a good friend. I really respect everything that he and you have done in the world of SaaS, which is pretty uh, fantastic right now. What a great start to the show. Thank you so much. Um, but let's kick off today with with how you made your way into the world of SaaS VC first and how that came about for you. You know, my path to venture, basically, I was a technical undergrad, went to Stanford Business School, went to Sun Microsystems in its heyday, and then joined a small startup that some Sun folks had started. And then within a little over a year, we got acquired by Intel. This is back in 1999 in the glory days of venture. And then and then John Doerr was looking for a new associate. And so I got that call and decided to leave Intel shortly after the, after the acquisition to, uh, to, to get into venture. And, you know, I, for me, it was just, um, you know, being in Silicon Valley and being early in my career, it just seemed like a fantastic way to explore and see a bunch of different technology areas, try and think about what the future might hold and meet amazing and wonderful people, uh, both executives and entrepreneurs. So that's kind of where I got to my starting point. Interesting question here. Did you automatically specialize in terms of vertical towards SaaS or was it kind of a developmental phase? SaaS for me has really been more like the past four or five years. So when I got into venture back in 99, SaaS didn't even exist, as you know. So so uh, that was back kind of in the um, e-commerce and the telecom infrastructure networking were some of the biggest areas uh, in venture back then. And then, you know, enterprise software had a really rough go of it in the early 2000s. Kind of look back on that period and say what was to be learned from that. And I think if you're in an environment where IT budgets are shrinking and large companies don't want to buy anything from anybody who doesn't have a strong balance sheet, 
execute well. Uh, investing in enterprise companies and ventures probably not going to be that good of a business. And I think that pretty much was true back in that time frame. But, you know, we started to come out of that in 2007. And I think we really found that obviously with the, you know, Salesforce kind of kicking off this, um, this SaaS revolution and kind of in parallel with that, a lot of the incumbents who kind of starved their R&D efforts or who were all on premise started to really feel kind of long in the tooth and stale in their product lines. So it gave a lot of opportunity for new companies to come along. I think secondly, the whole model of selling software changed where companies started being more willing to sell in kind of small bite-sized chunks. Obviously, SaaS uh, enabled that or allowed that because you didn't need to go to some big expensive install process and go with a you know, expensive or long direct sale. But this whole notion of departmental selling, functional selling, the notion that a, a DevOps person or a, a head of HR could buy a product, I mean, that that kind of happened around that same time frame and is really accelerated. But I think just kind of breaking down that barrier to sell enterprise software, both in in terms of its delivery mechanism, I you know in the class and cloud and SaaS, as well as a more distributed set of empowered set of buyers, just changed the game for the for the world of SaaS and software. And so I kind of started in that you know shortly after that happened in the you know 2009 2010 timeframe. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, I do have to ask before before we dive in to SaaS meat. Uh, you said about John Doe there and, and Kleiner. In terms of learnings from that experience, working with with the team. What were your big takeaways from that that you kind of applied to your future roles and now your role with Menlo? Yeah, I mean, it was amazing being at Kleiner, you know, back in 1999. We had just invested in companies like Amazon and Juniper Networks and you know Google had just we had just funded Google a month before I arrived at the firm and every Google board meeting up until the time it went public so just you know some amazing learnings and I think you know one of the things that's always been a hallmark of Kleiner is just you know recognizing really big trends as they're emerging you know going long on those and getting behind some of the biggest and, and best ideas and I think that you know having kind of conviction when data is early and things are a little bit noisy in a market, but going long on it will often you know, prove to lead to the best and biggest and kind of outsized returns before everyone's there. I mean, look, we did it again in 2008 when I ran the iFund at Kleiner Perkins. So this was kind of a $100 million that ended up turning into a $200 million collaboration to kind of be the venture partner of Apple in the early wave of mobile applications as a lot of entrepreneurs were looking for capital. A lot of people weren't believing that many of these companies were going to be big. I mean, it's kind of amazing to go back and read some of the press after all these years and, and think about even some of the criticism we took at the time for thinking about committing $100 million and how were we ever going to put that to work and all these companies were going to be tiny and now you look at the, the likes of Uber, Snapchat, Airbnb and and obviously that's been proven wrong. But that was kind of the, the short answer to your question. Is that was kind of the main learnings. If you recognize a trend early, go big on it, get in the big ideas and the best entrepreneurs and that's kind of how I, I and we at Menlo look at investing right now. And I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about more about how that applies to SaaS in a bit as it continues to, to evolve. But 
but that's what makes this uh, business really exciting is finding, being kind of in early in, in, in big market trends and, and finding those companies that have the potential to be the leaders and disrupt massive industries. Absolutely. And taking that kind of switch back to the enterprise there where we discussed the shifts earlier, in terms of kind of the barren landscape that we saw kind of early 2000s in enterprise when there was a lack of spending from kind of large corporations to now when there seems to be a, a massive spending from large corporations, what have you seen the fundamental shifts to be in this landscape? Uh, and then also an interesting one that I, I particularly ponder on is how do you think startups today can stand out to CIOs uh, and to the investment decision makers at the corporations in the mass field of startups offering their software? A bunch of things changed, and we've talked about a couple of them. One, I think just you know delivering software as a service made it so easy for someone just to try it in very quickly, get a sense of kind of short time to value what that would be like versus some big top-down IT sale where you had a three to six month integration sale. You had to go through all different kind of layers of IT to get it deployed, to get servers for it to run on, to get a you know security analyst involved. I mean, you go down the chain of things that used to take to sell software and it was very different in terms of both quickly getting up to time to value and the number of people that are involved. So those two were huge changes. I think, you know, you also had the previous mindset around software was you would build like this massive singular monolithic application. So if you were thinking about HR, it was it was PeopleSoft. And now if you look at the map of kind of SaaS HR companies, there's probably 50 that fit in that bucket. Many, many doing very well. Everything from companies like Gusto doing payroll and benefits to companies like Culture Ramp and Reflective and Glint doing performance reviews and on and on. So I think that basically had this shift of people feeling like they need to buy one monolithic application, drop it in on the company and say, use this for everything and 80% of it doesn't get used to people buying things very specifically that are kind of best of breed for that problem that they're trying to solve has been another huge shift. And in terms of um, you know your next question around getting the attention of the CIO, uh, these days you get a lot of startups who are, again, based on the dynamics we just were talking about, you get kind of this early head start in the enterprise. So you're kind of penetrated and you're working in some pocket, whether it's in a, in a DevOps area or whether it's in one organization, one, one group of HR, one geography, something like that that's been empowered to buy the product. So oftentimes by by the time you go into the CIO, you already have some kind of an internal champion and some kind of a proof point of, that the product makes sense. And that's just a massive difference versus going in cold, top down, and trying to convince the person that all the benefit that this product's going to have internally and what it could be and how they might deploy it and all of that. You go in with like, look, you're already doing this and you ought to do this more broadly. And we've got some other things coming that I think can make this even more strategic to you. So it's a very different conversation these days. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Talking of kind of shifts there and, and trends in general in the, in the ecosystem, we recently had Nakul Mandan from Lightspeed on the show, and, and he said he thought we'd see the second wave of consumerization of enterprise through business model. Do you agree with, firstly, this concept, and then what kind of key trends are you really honing in on at Menlo around the SaaS environment? What did he really mean, uh, if you can elaborate a little bit on, the, on this consumerization of the business model? In terms of kind of the payment plans, uh, so one-time payments, smaller payments, and a lot more of a self-service model. I think the good thing about SaaS is that there's been all 
all kinds of different business models already proven out from very, very small payments um, on a monthly basis to, you know, subscription companies like AppDynamics that oftentimes get, you know, seven, even eight figure deals up front, even though it's, you know, subscription software, they often get paid up front. So, I think that the ecosystem is tailored more to the buying patterns of the customers that they serve, and there are a variety of different models to accommodate that, whether it's per seat, whether it's capacity, whether it's somebody interacting with an API. I think this ecosystem has been really creative about pricing versus the former uh, license or on-prem model where you're just trying to figure out how much money you can get out of somebody without necessarily tying it to some more specific and, and measurable thing. So I think that's um, that's already been really positive. You know, in terms of where we're kind of focused in on on SaaS, you know, what we what really see is that you used to have the kind of former stack, if you will, an app layer, again, it was something like an SAP or PeopleSoft, one big monolithic app. At the management layer, you had companies like HP and IBM and Cisco providing their own proprietary management tools. You had at the database level, you had Oracle. And at kind of the infrastructure layer, you had server vendors, storage vendors, network vendors. And now as you fast forward to where we are today, kind of everything at that lower layer, so the kind of hardware infrastructure layer is obviously being commoditized by you know Amazon and, and Azure and, and Google. So those kind of that area has kind of gone away from an investment perspective. But you look at the rest, the three layers above that, database management and application, they've really been democratized in that there's not really dominant vendors who are kind of all-encompassing in terms of what they provide. So we kind of look at it as there's three new clouds that have emerged. There's the app cloud, the API cloud, and the management cloud. And all of those have a number of different vendors, again, that are kind of providing best of breed within that. So, you know, if in the management cloud, you've got, you know, AppDynamics for APM, serves a little bit more of the high-end market, New Relic, the low-end market, you've got, uh, you know, Datadog for infrastructure management, PagerDuty for alerting and managing kind of workflows. So a lot of activity there. Then you've got this API cloud with things like Twilio and Stripe and Plaid and, and companies like Clarify providing machine learning. So a whole new kind of ecosystem of SaaS companies has emerged where companies aren't necessarily application centric, but they're functional. They provide functionality across a broad set of applications. And then finally, the app cloud, which again is kind of more what we talked about before, where you've gone from a world of big monolithic apps like an SAP uh, or a Workday or a, you know PeopleSoft to now a best of breed broad set of applications that are kind of really built for you know, every vertical from finance to HR to engineering to DevOps to marketing and sales are obviously massive areas. So those things make SaaS more exciting than it's than it's ever been before because you've got both the combination of democratization and an open playing field in all three of those clouds. And, and I am a SaaS founder now in one of those clouds with an incredibly hot startup. I know it's not something uh, that you've got quite easily imaginable, but let's picture it. And and so, you know, we're going through the investment process now. And and in terms of the valuation, how do you look at valuation in, in this space? We've seen some interesting valuations, to say the least. Uh, how do you look to value very early stage SaaS companies, do you think? And what do you think people are doing wrong? I mean, the very early is the, the hardest. You know, once a company gets a little bit more mature, you can start applying things like 8x, 4 to 8x to 10x forward revenue. 
uh, or you know some multiple of ARR. I saw Jason tweet this morning that it's somewhere between what do you say four and four and ten or four and twenty something like that. Four and twenty, I think he said, depending upon how hot you are. I, and I, I think I that, speak to him enough. I don't need to read yeah. his stuff too. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I think that um, you know he's kind of right in that the band, which you know things are getting priced, especially at the early stage, is huge. Oftentimes, it's not so different from just general venture, which is kind of you know what's the bid and the ask. How many people are pursuing the company? How hot is the area they're in? How much does everyone feel like this idea and this founder is going to build something incredible? And the more those things kind of line up, then the higher the price goes. But I would say, look, the kind of an early stage SaaS company, if it's pre-adoption, it's going to price you know, sub 10. If you start to get in the million to ish ARR range, you know, you probably get somewhere around, you know, 12 to 20 to start to get in the four to five of ARR range. And frankly, that's the area where things can can go anywhere from 25, 30 pre all the way up to a hundred pre, frankly, depending upon how big people think the segment is, you know, how good the metrics look. I mean, a lot of it is, is also obviously in terms of pricing is, you know, how fast did they get from, let's say one to four or zero to three and what are their, you know, retention curves look like. So you're kind of looking at how much have they already cracked the code where, all the metrics line up and you can extrapolate this thing's really just going to take off versus, okay, like things look good. I love this product, but there's still some stuff to work through. You know, customer acquisition isn't quite where it needs to be yet. Churn's a little bit too high. Need to do some things with the product. So all those things can have a big impact on where the value, the valuation lands. And I'd love to, to discuss now 60 seconds faster. So it's a quick fire where I say a short statement and then you give me your immediate thoughts. How does that sound? Let's go for so let's do let's do your favorite SaaS reading material. Basically, I, I read my Twitter stream, of which I subscribe to many, many different uh, you know SaaS people who tweet about SaaS. So I think it's everything from the content that uh, Jason puts out to the new stack to various reporters who I know who cover SaaS. And then let's do biggest advice to SaaS founders. I think at this point, a lot of the individual kind of systems of record, the obvious workflows have been filled. So you don't want to be that next one that's kind of incrementally better. So think about a big new idea or how you're going into an existing category with some capability that is markedly better than those who've come before you. So is there something you could do with AI or machine learning to actually completely automate what's done by people today versus just making that workflow, for example, work better? Mm-hmm. What do you know now that you wish you'd known when you started? Venture's not as easy as it uh, appears on, on the surface. You're really in these things for you have to play the the long game. There's a lot to work through. Probably time and time again, you learn more than anything how much great people really matter. So get behind great founders and they'll figure it out. FOMO, how do you avoid it? Or, or do you not? Is it impossible to avoid it depends. I think that in general, we like to be thesis driven here at Menlo. So have a good sense of what we're looking for. And that guides us a bit. I think if you're not thesis driven, you can be a little bit scattered, kind of chasing the next opportunity without a lot of context. So I think if you're more thesis driven, get deeper into some areas and know what you're looking for. It allows you to make better decisions and make them quickly versus always being reactive. Absolutely. And moving away from the quick fire, and, and if you didn't 
know, which I'm sure most of the audience do by now, uh, I'm a bit of a VC nerd. Uh, so I want to finish today with the venture market and, and where you perceive the venture market to be in terms of kind of market cycles and whether it's harder now for SaaS companies to raise than ever before, do you think? It's not harder than before to raise capital for SaaS companies. I think it's a really good environment for SaaS companies, but it does go back to one of the rapid fire questions you asked me is I think people are looking now and saying, wow, there are a lot of SaaS companies out there and they're getting pretty granular in terms of their value proposition relative to an adjacent company. So I think you really need to think about how you come up with something that's that's novel, that's differentiated. Everyone's talking, obviously, about AI and machine learning. I don't, uh, I'm not dismissive of that at all. I think it's a massive opportunity. You just need to think wisely about how that applies to your your company, your product, and really gives you more differentiation than all the other companies who are going to be uh, talking about it. I also think we may be moving more from horizontal apps into um, vertical apps uh, that are industry-specific as you get access to larger and larger data sets and companies that understand the data of a specific industry very well are likely to be able to create a more differentiated solution than something that's that's a little bit more horizontal. So anyway, backdrop is a good and exciting time in SaaS. Think about something more novel than the next incremental sliver of of an opportunity that you you may be a little bit boxed in around. And you know, I think SaaS, there's a there's a higher expectation now in terms of you know getting funded. I think if you've been seed funded, people want to see a million or two of ARR. And you know, maybe that wasn't the case um, six or twelve months ago. I think in the later market stage of the market, you're gonna see a lot more pricing discipline around um, you know, multiples and you know how public companies are trading and People aren't willing to believe anymore that uh, things are going to be trading at 10 or 12x revenue or, or maybe even 8x. And, you know, Twilio is a nice outlier uh, and a very positive one. But nonetheless, the kind of majority of the market is not going to trade at those multiples. And so I think you're, feel, you're going to feel people being a little bit more rational on their pricing. In terms of just kind of to raise a good A, you know, you said nowadays it's a million ARR. In terms of other metrics, be it, you know, how much of a role does a fantastic retention rate or really good negative MRR figures play in the investment decision making? Is it purely a growth of MRR and how quickly uh, ARR is growing, sorry? Or are there kind of a combination of churn? Yeah. Uh, upsell, right? No, certainly all those metrics matter, and, uh, and you know I should have mentioned that. But um, yeah, look, there's so much data out there on SaaS companies, and at least you know we at Menlo and you know, several other peer firms who are active in SaaS, we we all have a set of metrics from many companies that we've seen or the best companies in our portfolio. And you kind of recognize the early patterns that led to that company that became an outlier. So. Uh, you know, in ways, I think you're right that those metrics are even probably more important than, you know, your absolute growth rate or your scale. I just think you need to be, you know, you need to have enough data points to back up those metrics and probably something around a million or north of a million at least gives you enough data points if you're more of a, you know, velocity-driven company. If you're kind of the company that has two $500,000 deals or three, 300000 that that's not going to be very compelling. I think people want to see that you figured out a repeatable model when there's enough data to see how customers trended over time. So I think that's kind of the, the starting point is you need to have a little bit of scale. Those metrics need to look 
look good, the better the met- those metrics are, the higher your valuation is going to be. Well, Matt, it's been such a pleasure having you on the show today. As I said, I've heard so much from Jason, uh, and I'm just so thrilled to have you on the show. So thank you so much for joining me today. I enjoyed it. Thanks for the time, and I uh, would love to do it again. So fantastic to have Matt on the show today and a huge hand to him for giving up his time today to appear on the show. I also have to give a huge hand to Jason Lemkin for making the introduction today to Matt without which the episode could not have happened. And if you'd like to see more incredible interviews like this in person, then all you have to do is head over to sasta.com, purchase your tickets for Sasta Annual 2017. And when you're buying them, simply type in these beautiful three words, drinks with Harry, and you get a free hour of mojitos on the kind bank of Mr. Lemkin. And also you will get 20% off your ticket As always, it's been such a pleasure bringing you today's show, and we look very forward to bringing you Friday's episode.